as you find your place in God's Word. Pretty easy, just go to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and uh, you will be there. Chapter 27, we're continuing our study here this morning on the life of the trickster, the schemer and the dreamer, Jacob. Last week we started our first message, and today we're looking here at a sermon entitled, A House Divided. But I heard about a couple who was coming up on their 50th wedding anniversary. And uh, wouldn't you know that this husband and wife uh, did nothing but fuss and fight, especially as they got more crotchety and older up in their years. And so their kids decided for their anniversary that year that they would pay for their parents to go to marriage counseling. So after much discussion, uh, the kids finally did persuade mom and dad to go to the counselor. So during the first session, the marriage counselor asked the husband, uh, so after you have had a fight, what do you do? And the husband said, well, I go out for a walk <laughs> and uh, I try to cool off. And then the counselor asked the wife the same question. And she said, well, when my husband is in a foul mood and we've had a fight, I go and clean the bathroom. And the counselor thought that was kind of strange because who in their right mind would do housework after a fight? But he asked her, he said, and does that calm you down? The lady said, why, yes, in fact, it does. And he peered a little bit closer. He said, and why is that, miss? And she said, well, because when I do, I'm using his toothbrush. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, in one of his books, uh, Philip Yancey writes about the toxic effects of bitterness and unforgiveness. And he says, you know, if those are not dealt with, this kind of relational strife will cause spouses to drift away. And then he tells a, a tragic but true story of a Texas couple who had been married for 40 years and... This unhappy couple, as you might imagine, fought and bickered. And finally the day came when they had a knockdown, drag-out fight to end them all. And the couple ended up giving each other the silent treatment. Some of you fellas, you don't have to raise your hand, but you know what that's all about. You know when you're in the doghouse. And so soon they were giving each other the silent treatment and they weren't watching TV together. And then it got worse. They weren't... Uh, eating dinner together in the living room. And then it got to the point where they weren't sleeping in the same bedroom anymore. They were like ships passing in the night. And Philip Yancey said in his book that the man lived on one side of the house, the wife lived on the other. He said a few months into this epic fight, the husband fired up his chainsaw. And in a few minutes, he sawed their house exactly in half. He nailed up planks to cover the exposed sides of the house, and then he hired a construction company to help move his side of the house behind a row of scruffy pine trees on the same acre of ground, and he said that the disgruntled couple lived out the rest of their days in separate half houses. True story. You talk about a house divided. It seems like the kind of fodder that you would hear about or see on Dr. Phil or daytime television, but in reality, the classic family feud is just as prevalent among people of faith. In fact, I would argue 
that if you are looking for the model family, you'd be hard-pressed to find one in the Bible. Why the book of Genesis is a record of families so messed up, they make the Griswolds look like the Waltons. <laughs> Think about it. The first family produced fratricide, Cain murdering his brother Abel. Then when you open up Abraham's family story, why they could be fit for a plot on reality TV because here you have two wives with two sons trying to live under one tent and it didn't work. And then the dysfunction is passed down to another generation here when we come to Isaac and Rebekah. You'll remember that their marriage did get off to a promising start. But by the time that we open up Genesis 27, here you have two people that have drifted apart. Years of paternal favoritism has now divided this family. Isaac prefers his brawny son of the wild Esau, and Rebekah loves her nurturing, and she shelters her mama's boy named Jacob. And so the battle lines have been drawn long ago, and now these two sons become pawns, if you will, in a chess match between a house divided. Now, what we're going to see here in chapter 27, really, the only way to put it, it's a family portrait that turns into a dumpster fire. It's a mess. It's a case study on how sin fractures the family. And it is a picture of what Jesus talked about in Mark chapter 3, verse 25. A house divided cannot stand. So let's get the story under our belt and understand it this morning as we find Genesis chapter 27. I'm just going to give you a skeleton outline of the passage and then at the end I want to make some pertinent applications to our walk with the Lord. But number one we see this, a disobedient father. A disobedient father starting now in verse 1. And when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow. And go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die, a disobedient father. Now Isaac's eyesight isn't the only thing leaving him here in his old age. Here's a man who has lost his spiritual devotion to obey the Lord. You'll remember Genesis chapter 22 that as a younger man, Isaac was willing to be a sacrifice to lay himself on the altar at the stead of his father Abraham but now, you see, in his elder years, he has turned, tragically, to scheming and lying. You see, before his sons were born, you remember last week when we looked into chapter 26, that the Lord had told Isaac and Rebekah that Jacob, the younger son, would receive the covenant blessing, that the younger son would lord over or be superior to the older son. And yet we find here a secret meeting between father and now elder son Esau. 
And Isaac has planned to bless Esau despite the clear word of the Lord that Jacob would be the one to receive the inheritance. Now this is nothing short than a premeditated plot on Isaac's part to undermine God's revealed will. You might say that Isaac's physical desire for venison is stronger than his spiritual desire to serve and obey the Lord. By the way, to him who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is, what is it church? Sin. So Isaac now is a sad example of a biblical principle that we see throughout the Word of God. And that's this, a good beginning doesn't guarantee a good ending. How many Bible characters do we know that start off great but end up faltering before the finish line? Isaac is one of those. Here's a man, he's come from a good family of faith. At one time, he did walk closely with the Lord. But now, sadly, in his later years, he has drifted away. He's disobedient. And yes, I'd say he's backslid. There's always two things preceding backsliding in our lives. It's always being careless and being prayerless. Vance Hadner, the old-time Southern preacher, said this. He said, quote, Taking it easy is always the prelude to backsliding. Comfort precedes collapse. Most backsliding begins when knee-bending ends. Friend, how many of you know this morning that it doesn't matter how long you've walked with the Lord. It doesn't matter what church title is in the front of your name. It doesn't matter uh, what your spiritual status is. You have to get up daily and resurrender your life to Jesus Christ. And no matter who you are or, or, or what place you may hold in the church, you have to daily take up your cross and resurrender your life or else you fall into the danger of backsliding just like Isaac. You will become complacent and compromising and callous because, friend, we can't live off yesterday's blessings. Yesterday's victories won't win today's battles. You've got to get up every day, no matter how long you've walked with the Lord, and say, God, help me to walk with you. A disobedient father. And so the collapse of Isaac's family falls at his feet disobeying the revealed will of God and planning this secret meeting to bless Esau despite what God said years ago. Then we see number two. It gets worse. Not only a disobedient father, but a devious mother. A devious mother. Verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau so when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves and you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will fill me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. 
And his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. And so he went and he took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food as his father loved. And then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. The skins of the young goats she put on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food, the bread, which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. A devious mother. What Isaac didn't know was that Rebekah was eavesdropping on Isaac and Esau's little plan. And when she heard that Isaac was going to bless Esau over her favorite son Jacob, all the wheels started turning in her head. And she hatched her own counterplot. Now, if Esau was like Isaac, then you can see where Jacob inherited his knack for trickery. He gets it from his mama, Rebekah. Now, if you read between the lines, you can sort of piece together what this mother's line of thinking is. She says, hey, if I don't do something now then God's promise to my favorite son won't come true. In other words, I better help God out in this situation. Speed up the plan. So, now you might say that Isaac and Rebekah are both equally sinful in their approach to God's Word, but they come at it from opposite ends. Isaac doesn't want God's will, and so he's trying to keep it from coming to pass by giving the blessing to his older son. Rebekah does want the will of God to come to pass, but she doesn't think that God is capable of doing it in his own way and in his own time. One is disobedient to the will of God, and the other is doubtful of the promise of God. You see that? Now, think about this. How awkward was this moment? How do you think Jacob felt going into the dressing room or the tent there and trying to fit into his brother's stinky clothes? How awkward that was putting on clothes that weren't his to make a disguise. How feverishly did Rebecca work in the kitchen to make goat's meat taste like venison? A pinch of salt here and a, a dash of spice there. A little sage, maybe a, a clove of garlic mushrooms and then cook it all into one thick gravy. And, and here's what I see about that whole situation. That's a lot of hard work to try and deceive the old man. You see, friend, when you've decided to uh, go sideways and go your own way, when you don't live by faith, listen, it's a lot of hard work to do it your own way rather than God's way. Wouldn't it be a whole lot easier for them just to trust God in this moment rather than doing all this crazy stuff behind the scenes to get their way? You see, when you don't live by faith, it's a lot of hard work to live in sin, isn't it? Rebecca's behavior here kind of reminds me of an old country western song. I don't know if you remember, it was sung by the Dell Reeves band, and the, the name of the song was Working Like a Devil for the Lord. You remember that song? Well, they have lyrics in it that go like this. Now he calls everything he does a business deal, because he knows that the Bible says, Thou shalt not steal. He plans to repossess the preacher's beat up Ford, because he's working like the devil for the Lord. Each Sunday morning, you don't 
have to search because he stands out in the front of the church. He's in charge of collection plate and he's chairman of the board because he's working like the devil for the Lord. And that's exactly what you see Rebecca doing here. She's working like crazy, thinking that she can do God's will, but she's going about it in the complete wrong way. A devious mother. And she's trying to force something, force her own agenda. You ever tried to force something that didn't fit? The other night, Abigail had set up a, a pretend beach in her bedroom. We hadn't got to go to the beach in a while. So the best thing we can do is pretend, right? Amen? <laughs> Pretending to go to the beach. And so she had set up this pretend beach in her bedroom. She had her Barbies set up there. She had her friends, her stuffed animals, lined up there. And we were enjoying the fake beach and putting on pretend suntan lotion. And, oh, don't you hear the waves coming in, sister? We were having a good time. And then she pulled out a puzzle. Abigail loves to do puzzles. She's a master of puzzles. She's got a whole collection of them. She said, Daddy, let's do a puzzle on the beach. And so we're pretending we're having fun and trying to put together this puzzle, you know, looking at the box top and putting it together. And I don't know how you do it, but I try and go around the edge first and get the edge done. That's the easy part. And so here I am trying to get this puzzle put together. And uh, this one piece, man, it just won't fit. And so I'm twisting it and turning it and flipping it every which way. And Abigail looks at me and she takes the piece out of my hand and she said, Daddy, you can't force it because you'll break it. And then she took it out of my hand and she put it right in the place where it needed to be. It's always good for your ego to be corrected by a four-year-old, Amen. But she taught me a lesson. That's true when it comes to waiting for God's will and God's blessing in our lives. If you force it, you'll break it. What a hard lesson to learn in life. You ever tried to force something in your own way that you knew wasn't of God? A relationship that you knew it didn't have the blessing of God on it, but by golly, you were in love and you were going to do it anyway? manipulating behind the scenes to try and get your way worked out. Oh, God, I'm taking this job because look at the pay. Uh, don't mention the fact that it's going to put a burden on your family and take you away from them and jeopardize your place in the house of God. We force things in our lives. It doesn't have the blessing of God on it, just like Rebecca's deviousness. And then we see not only a disobedient father and a devious mother, but we see number three, a deceiving brother. A deceiving brother. This is not a flattering picture of this family, is it? Verse 18, notice what the Word of God says. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn, and I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Ooh. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. And so Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's. But the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And so he blessed him. 
And he said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. And then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. And so he brought it near to him and he ate. And he ate, brought his wine and he drank. And when his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. And said, see, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you and be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you and, and cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Oh my goodness. Do not miss the irony of this scene right here. It's a question of who's deceiving who. On one hand, you got Jacob. He's definitely pulling the wool over his father's eyes. And then you have Isaac, who thinks that it's really Esau, although Jacob is doing all that he can to convince him. And Isaac thinks he's deceiving Jacob by blessing Esau. Reminds me of the old quote, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. I don't know about you, but if you were keeping track as I read that passage, by my count, Jacob tells about three lies in the span of 30 seconds. Verse 19, he lied about his identity. Are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. He lied about God helping him catch the meat. Verse 20, did you see that? Ooh, what a devious lie that was. And then in verse 24, he lied about his identity again. And then he sealed the betrayal, verse 27, with a kiss. You know, one thing as I study that passage is this. A lie can never stand on its own. It's always got to be propped up by other lies. So one lie leads to another. And finally, you have to keep lying to cover up the previous lie and that's why Abraham Lincoln said a long time ago, if you're going to be a good liar, you had better have a good memory. Speaking of that, I pulled a story directly out of the news. You can't write this stuff. Directly out of the newspaper. Listen to this. The man's name was Vernon Grounds. He was arrested in Glendale, Arizona. Somehow this man was married to four different women which he was able to keep a secret from the wives. The tangled love life of the 33-year-old man began to unravel when one of the four women to whom he was married filed a missing persons report after he disappeared longer than usual. Grounds kept his ruse by telling his wives that his job kept him on the road for days on end. When police finally caught up with him, they found his smoking gun. The playboy carried a little black book in his wallet to keep his lies straight that he had told each of the women. That's a lot of hard work to keep a lie going, isn't it? Well, Jacob finally got what he wanted, didn't he? He got that which he had pursued and striven for and lied and cheated and stolen. He got the blessing. He got the birthright. He achieved it dishonestly. An old friend, would he pay a hefty price for this because sin is like a credit card. Enjoy it now, pay later. And the interest is killer, amen? A deceiving brother, a disobedient father, a devious mother, and then number four, 
Notice how this story ends. A disgraced son. A disgraced son. Verse 30. The Bible says this. And as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out of the presence of, his, of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. And he also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. And then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. And as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with exceeding great bitterness of cry. And he said to his father, Bless me, even also my father. But he said, Your brother has come deceitfully and taken away your blessing. Think about this scene. When Esau arrives in the tent with his stew or his meat or whatever it is that he had prepared there, oh, how the food that was on Isaac's belly started to sour. The sick realization comes over Isaac, and it's twofold. Number one, I've just been duped by Jacob. And number two, after all of that scheming that I tried to do behind the scenes, what God said would come to pass came to pass just as God declared it long ago when the two boys were wrestling in Mama's womb. Then you got Esau. He's disgraced. He's filled with rage and revenge. You can understand it. Verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And so from this point on, notice this. Esau is going to be hell-bent on getting the blessing back and revenging his brother now, in order to escape Esau's wrath, notice this. Rebekah tells Jacob, hey, you've got to get out of Dodge. You've got to get out of here. Flee to your uncle Laban. Verse 42, look at what happens. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. And so she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you. You by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. And so we stop right there and we leave Isaac's family a hot mess. So, what do we apply to our lives from all this? There's at least three things that I want you to see this morning as we close. What do we take away from this for you and me? The first application I would say is this. When we don't do it God's way, we always pay. Think about how everyone tries to get their way in this story, but they end up being losers at the end of the scene. By the way, there's no free rides in the devil's fairgrounds. He always makes you pay. Isaac he placed his favorite son under a curse and blessed Jacob. And now his family is riddled with rivalry. One is a fugitive, the other becomes a hitman, and now his marriage to Rebecca is a shambles. And then think about Rebecca. Here she is, she's bereft of her sons. Her situation with her blind husband is now getting worse. She may have helped Jacob get the birthright, but now her favorite has to go live in a faraway country. She doesn't even get to see him. 
Jacob, he becomes a man on the run. He will spend the next 20 years looking over his shoulder, waiting Esau's wrath to come down on him. And because of his exile, it's going to be a long time before he can come home again. And then Esau, not only does he come away empty-handed from this, holding the short end of the stick, but here's a man whose heart is now filled with rage and bitterness and unforgiveness. And here's the point. God is responsible for the consequences of our obedience. But we are responsible for the consequences of our disobedience. And when we don't do it God's way, we always pay. Second application is this. It's coming up on the screen here. The thing that you think will complete your life is often the thing that leaves you feeling empty and wanting more. You say, how does that fit in? Jacob had to lie, cheat, and steal to get what he most wanted, the blessing. But in the process, look at what he lost. He lost his peace. He lost his witness. He lost his family. He lost his walk with God. And this is the deceitfulness of seeking the right thing in the wrong way. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be blessed by God. But it matters how you go about it. You see, only Christ is able to fulfill the deepest longings of our heart and able to give us His rich blessings without all the heartache, without all regret, without the wages of sin that comes along with us. And what we see here is the thing that Jacob think that, that he wanted the most, the blessing, is the thing that when he got it, it left him feeling more empty and shallow and wanting. Then lastly, I see this. Last application for you and me is that God's will cannot be thwarted whether we work with Him or against Him. Think about this, friend. This is so powerful. Isaac fought against God's plan of blessing Jacob, but guess what? It happened anyway. <laughs> Despite the sin and the deceit in the family, the purpose of God was fulfilled exactly as God said it would be years ago when the little twin boys were striving in Rebekah's womb. You see, God is sovereign. Man proposes, but God disposes. Man thinks He rules, but God overrules. Uh, man plays checkers, but God plays chess, and He's ten steps ahead, and He already knows a move you're going to make and has it planned out before the foundation of the earth. You think about that. God's will can't be thwarted whether we work with Him or against Him. You say, how does that work out? Think about the cross. Think about Calvary. Think of all the sin and the wickedness that brought Jesus to the cross. A Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied the Lord. The Pharisees lied and came up with all these trumped up charges against Jesus. The crowd cheered, let us have Barabbas. Let him go free. Crucify the Jesus. And you read the gospel stories and you think, well gosh, from the human perspective, everybody's against Jesus. This whole thing's a conspiracy against him. How can God win? But I'm telling you that my God is sovereign and that my God works all things together for good. And God can take the sin and the lying and the deceiving and the disobedience and He works it all together and said, yes, you were working against me, Judas, and Jews, and Romans. You were working against me. But what you didn't realize is that you were also working for me because this was the plan that I foreordained long ago 
so that my son would die on the cross and pay for your sin and my sin. It's a sovereign plan of God working in the life of this crazy redneck family. God used it just as he did when it came time for Jesus to die. Maybe you've been acting like the members of some of these family members right here. You've been fighting against God. You've been trying to get your own will for the longest time. But now you've become to realize that that's a fight I can't afford to win. Maybe you're like Isaac. You're out of God's will. Or you're like Rebecca. You've you tried to manipulate things behind the scenes to get your way. Maybe you're like Jacob. You take advantage of people to get what you want out of life. Maybe you're like Esau. Somebody gave you a raw deer years ago. They hurt you. And you're full of anger and bitterness and you still hadn't let it go. I'm telling you today, there's grace and mercy for all of that. God has forgiveness for an Isaac. God has a place in his plan for Rebecca. God has restoration for a deceiver and a trickster like Jacob. God has grace for an Esau. I don't know what side of the tracks you're coming from, but there's Jesus and he has grace and mercy for every kind of situation that you're going through. Speaking of fighting against God, by the way, I wasn't so sure how this message was going to turn out today, but I think God showed up. Amen. Not bragging on me, bragging on Him. Speaking about fighting against God, in one of his books, Robert Morgan tells a story of an old preacher years ago. His name is W.F. Thompson. Here's his picture coming up on the screen. Here's a man who finally saw the futility of fighting with God. Let me show you, share his story. The old Trinity Church in Du Bois, Pennsylvania seemed like an unlikely place for a squirming Thompson teenager to sit on a stuffy Sunday night. He was disinterested. He was bored. His energy was ready to explode. Praise God we got some of those here. Praise God for energetic children in your church. But as young Thompson sat in his pew, a strange thought hit him like lightning. Someday, you're going to preach from that pulpit. Later, his mama reinforced it in his life. Son, I'm praying that God will save you and make a preacher out of you. How do you run from mama's prayers? Young William Thompson resisted that calling with everything that was inside of him. I don't want to have anything to do with your God, Mama. You're a fool if you think I'm ever going to be a preacher one day. At age 17, he joined the Marines. He went to boot camp. He became a savage fighter. He sees violence like an alcoholic grabbing a bottle of whiskey. He said in his testimony, I crave blood. I enjoyed killing on the battlefield, he said. After the war, Thompson moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. He went into business for himself. One Friday, a man entered his office brandishing a gun, demanding money from his safe. A man like Thompson wasn't just going to lay down and let him take it. So a scuffle ensued, and Thompson pursued the thief down the street. 
As he turned the corner, he came upon the gunman who was poised, waiting for him. And the first bullet went right into Thompson's chest. The next two into his shoulder and his arm. Thompson clung to life in the hospital. His wife urged the doctors to prepare his funeral arrangements. And as he moved in and out of consciousness, he looked over. He saw a Bible on the nightstand. God has a mysterious way, doesn't he? The Bible was open. It angered young Thompson because he felt that God had allowed this tragedy into his life. And so with the strength that he had, he reached over and he closed the Bible. And then he drifted back into a daze. A few hours later, he opened his eyes again and saw the same Bible on the same nightstand opened again. He reached over, slammed it shut. Went off into a daze, woke up a third time, looked over on his bedside, and there was a Bible opened again, just asking to be read. He said this in his testimony, summoning my strength, I reached over with a grunt, and I thought about throwing the Bible across the room. I was so mad at God. But as the Bible hovered over my eyes, he said, it was there at John chapter 6 and verse 37, God's word hit me like a hail of bullets. He said, the one who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. With trembling hands, he opened the Bible carefully and read one verse after another after another. And before the night was over, he gave his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ laying up there in the ICU of the hospital. And then as he preached his first sermon a few weeks after that, he told the story of how God saved him, how God crippled him, how God wrestled him down to nothing, and God saved him in his weakest moment. You see, friend, wrestling with God, fighting against God's will, that's a battle you can't afford to win. The Christian life begins when we wave the flag and say, I surrender all. I'm not doing the deceiving anymore. I'm not, not living by my own way anymore. I'm not, not tricking and lying and cheating and stealing to get my way. God, I, I recognize you're greater. Jacob hadn't come to that point yet in our text, but we'll get there. What about you? Do you need to come and surrender something to the Lord Jesus? Our musicians are coming. Our altar is going to be open. Maybe you need to give up the fight today. You need to surrender you need to give your sin to Jesus and you need to ask for a new life. you got a burden you've been carrying around for a long time and it's getting heavy and your knees are buckling and, and you need to give it to the Lord. The altar is going to be opened for prayer, for repentance, for confession. You come as our musicians prepare and I'd love to meet you.